0: Hi, my name is Pam. The Old Testament reading is found in Jonah 3, verses 1 through 4. The Lord's word came to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and declare against it the proclamation that I am commanding you. And Jonah got up and went to Nineveh, according to the Lord's word. Now Nineveh was indeed an enormous city, a three days walk across. Jonah started into the city, walking one day, and he cried out, Just forty days more, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Sarah. The New Testament reading is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hi, my name is Naomi. Thank you for standing for the Gospel reading found in Matthew 12, 38 to 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon <clears throat> is here. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to
1: God, Lord Christ. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you call to us. Help us now as we listen to the preaching of the word to hear your voice calling to us. Awaken something in us. Challenge us, change us, conform us. To the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. Do this for the good of the world around us, and do this for your glory. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, New Life Downtown. It is so good to be back with you. My name (laughs) my. My name is Glenn Packham. I serve as the pastor here at New Life Downtown. Uh, last Sunday, I had the privilege of going to check on or really to be a witness to Uh, the wonderful work that's happening out at New Life East, our seventh congregation of New Life Church. And last week was their second week meeting, and there were over 500 people gathered there at Grand Peak Academy. Just an amazing, amazing testimony. So keep praying that the Lord will use that new congregation to reach uh, many, many people in that neighborhood and community. Then the week before that, uh, my son Jonas and I were in England. I was teaching at Durham University for a couple of days, but Jonas and I got to do some fun things on the Front end, including going to a Manchester United soccer match. That was a wonderful memory, great experience. And then the week before that, I was helping to lead the services at New Life North. So I have missed you, missed being here, but I've been listening on the podcast, and Pastor Jason Jackson has just done a phenomenal job (laughs) preaching and teaching and bringing the word. Really amazing. I listen while I'm on the elliptical, so I work out just a little harder when he starts talking about judgment and stuff. It's been really, really wonderful. This morning as we're continuing our series on the book of Jonah, the series is called When God Calls, and this morning we're going to talk about justice, judgment, and the mercy of God. Justice, judgment, and the mercy of God. We're a game-playing family. We like all kinds of games, we like board games, we like card games, but we've discovered, you know, we have four kids and two of of whom are 10 and under, and we've discovered that it's very important when you're playing a game to establish up front, particularly with younger children, uh, that what the policy is going to be about do-overs. You, you have to set this, you know, make sure the expectations are clear. Otherwise, as soon as they make a move that they realize is going to be a bad move or was a mistake, they'll say, oh, no, 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 do over. And so especially when we're playing cards, we have the saying, a card laid is a card played. You cannot go back there. Is it? you? You can't undo this thing. But actually, this desire, this impulse in us to want to have a do over is not just in kids. It's in all of us. Uh, you think about maybe a movie like Groundhog Day, where he lives the same day over and over again is kind of a jerk for some, some of the moments, but then maybe by the end figures out, oh, perhaps I should actually relive these moments better. Uh, or there was a movie a couple years ago called About Time, about a man who discovers his generational gift to the men in his family of being able to go back in time. Now, Caveat, when I mention movies, I'm not recommending them, I'm only referencing them. Do your own homework as to whether you should watch them or not. Okay, Uh, this is not like a a carte blanche endorsement. But in in the movie About Time, he discovers that one of the best ways to get the most out of each day is to, at the end of the day, reflect back on the day and then go back in time and relive that specific day until he gets to the point that he can live each day sort of intentionally but the idea is we need a do-over or maybe you followed the hit nbc tv series called the good place and you followed that its final conclusion was basically that if human beings had an infinite number of chances at this thing called life We might get better at kindness and goodness and love. And sort of this, it's a sort of a hodgepodge philosophy of reincarnation slash stoicism. Uh, And then when you sort of arrive at the place where you have nothing left to resolve or get right, you can just end your existence. Whatever the approach is in any of these movies or TV shows, there's something that resonates with us because we just sort of think, if I could do it again, I would get it right. Jonah chapter 3, in its very literary style, is like a do-over. Now, if, I don't know if you've noticed as you've been listening to Pastor Jason preach, but Jonah chapter 1, Pastor Jason helped us kind of see that this book is about God calling a prophet who wrestled with his own form of radical ethno-nationalism, that's a mouthful, and did because of that didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew that these people were wicked and vile and violent and didn't want God's mercy to reach them. Pastor Jason said in, in the first couple of weeks that Jonah really had a thief. Theological problem. He didn't want it to be true that God's love was available for everyone. And so in Jonah 1, he flees the opposite way. He goes the opposite direction. Go to Nineveh. He says, no, 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 I'm going to go to Tarshish, which is a comfortable place, almost like a beach town, a coastal town. And he's thinking, maybe instead of doing the hard thing, I don't want to preach to the enemies of my people. Instead, I'm going to go to the beach. God has other plans, and there's a storm. And so in week two, in chapter two, Pastor Jason helped us recognize that the great fish is not an instance of God's punishment or judgment, but actually an instance of God's salvation and rescue. It's a demonstration of how God keeps chasing us down I don't know if you've also picked up on this as you've been maybe reading along or listening to the sermons and by the way you can just like me you can listen on the podcast if you're traveling or sick or whatever not only on Facebook live sometimes you can go back and find those videos but on our website you can download it or if you're an Apple iPhone person you can catch up on the podcast that way But in this book, there's a lot of comedy in the book of Jonah. There's a lot of exaggerated storytelling as a way of helping us to see the point, but also to kind of use a little bit of this humor to disarm us into saying, oh, 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 you're talking about me. And so now we get to Jonah chapter 3, and he's about to deliver this message of judgment. But Jonah 3, in its literary style, is like a do-over, a reset, if you will, of chapter 1. Look at some of these parallels for a moment. God's word comes to Jonah. It happens in the first verse of Jonah 1 and of Jonah 3. And the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jonah. It's almost identical wording. And then the message to be conveyed is there in verse 2. And then the very third verse is Jonah's response. In Jonah 1, his response was to get up and go the other way down to the docks. And in Jonah 3, his response is to obey. But then you keep going. The word of warning is listed in the fourth verse of each of these chapters. And then you see the pagans' response. In chapter 1, it's this pagan sailors. I love the phrase that Pastor Jason used. He said, God used a God-fleeing prophet to rescue, uh, to turn pagans into God-fearers. What a clever way of seeing the mercy of God that continues to chase us down. And then you see the pagan leaders' responses we'll see in chapter 3 today. So turn with me if you've got your Bible to Jonah chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. The Lord's word came to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and declare against it the proclamation, I am commanding you. And Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's word. Now Nineveh was indeed an enormous city, a three days walk across. And Jonah started into the city walking one day, and he cried out, just 40 days more, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now right off the bat in this chapter, we are confronted with the judgment of God. And if there's one aspect of God's character or maybe one part of God's actions that we don't want to have to deal with, that we want to sort of ignore, it is this. It's God's judgment. And maybe it's because we have this this idea in our mind that God is just vengeful and wrathful and that His judgments are erratic and He's just sitting up in heaven saying, who can I strike with lightning right now? Or maybe it's because... You grew up in a home where a parent was violent and unpredictable and tragically even abusive. And so when you read passages that mention a judgment of God or an anger of God, it's a trigger for you because you start to say, well, that can't be true. How, how do we get around this? What, what's actually going on here? And my hope for us this morning is that you would see and understand the justice and judgment of God in a new way and understand how it connects to the very mercy of God. And so the first thing I want to say to us this morning is that actually justice and judgment belong together. Justice and judgment belong together. They are, if you'd like, like two sides of the same coin, Now we don't see it this way. We want justice for ourselves, meaning we've been mistreated. We want justice for our own mistreatment, and we want judgment on everyone else. You see this sometimes in the voice of the psalmist, where the psalmist says, "Lord, I've kept my hands pure, I've been perfect, and yet all my enemies are so wicked. And there's this sense in which we are always the innocent victim, and someone else is always the wicked perpetrator. So God, vindicate me, and execute vengeance on my enemies." And so we separate out justice and judgment. Charles Dickens in the opening pages of his great novel, Great Expectations, writes, "...in the little world in which children have their existence, whoever is bringing them up, there is nothing so finely perceived, so finely felt as injustice." And every parent in the room understands this. You're like, maybe one of your child's first fully formed sentences are, no fair. You start to, as a kid, you develop this keen awareness to the unfairness of life. How come he gets another piece of candy and I don't? How come I got all bad Valentine's candy and they got all the good stuff? No fair. Jonas wants judgment on the Assyrians and justice for himself. In fact, in chapter 4, you'll see Jonah's sense of being wronged comes out even in his response to a plant. And he says, hey, the world is against me. And his lens for the world is, I deserve justice, but they deserve judgment. What we have to understand in the Bible is that justice and judgment belong together. And if we don't want to separate it out that way, then the other thing we want to do is actually erase judgment. We want to live in a world where there's no judgment being made on anyone, where you can be you, and I can be me, and you can do you, and you can have your truth, and I'll have my truth, and we just won't judge one another, and it will be happier if we had no judgment going around. But see, with no judgment... There is no justice. It is impossible to have justice if you will not have judgment. Why? Because you can't set things right if you won't say that something is wrong. You can't set things right if you won't say that something else is wrong. There has to be judgment of good versus evil in order for there to be justice. In the 1800s, when... And the British began to have a stronger presence in India, and the Indian subcontinent included more countries than it does today. And it began by a presence through a commerce, the East India Company, and then a private guard, and then it eventually became more and more official. And as more official representatives began to arrive on the Indian subcontinent, they observed a practice that was going on, where when an Indian man would die, they would set his body on a, on a, a bed of sticks, a pyre. And they were lighted on fire, but before they lit it on fire, his widow, his surviving wife, would have to lay down on his body and be burned with him. It was a practice called sati. And when the British came, many of these were Christians. They were appalled by this practice. This is not right. This is inhumane. This is a violation. But the concept of human rights was an evolving one, a developing one that came actually from, from Christian roots. And so as these British Christians began to say this isn't a, a good practice, this isn't the right thing, they wanted a sense of justice that came actually from a Christian way of understanding humanity and the world. But you cannot issue a judgment on a practice in order to have justice, without one without the other. There's no way of saying, well, what if we just said, well, you know, it's just a different cultural expression. Maybe this is okay. They said this can't be okay. This is in itself wrong. And they had to develop a framework for convincing that, which side note, part of that framework was to export uh, a concept of religion that was separate from culture see in the ancient world religion was not a separate private thing it was just all part of your way of life but as as in western society particularly in the UK when they began to develop religion as this private sphere they were able to then say to the people of India okay you've got your religious practices over here let's call this one a cultural practice that has to then go away and they convinced Brahmin the Hindu leaders to follow suit you can't have justice without judgment another Example of this is in our world today, in our society, in our culture, people will say, well, you know, what we want is tolerance. And so we make tolerance the new absolute. And so you have to be tolerant. But by making tolerance an absolute, you've just created a new standard of judgment. And now if someone else is not as by your definition tolerant, then you can be intolerant of them. (laughs) And so anytime you absolutize something, you've created a new standard of judgment. So I'd like to suggest to you this morning, the issue is not that we have judgments or that we make judgments. The question is, who is the judge and on what basis? The the problem is not that we have to judge between good and evil and that the solution is just to erase judgment, say, hey, everybody do as you please. We don't believe that. We don't want to go back to institutionalized slavery. We don't want to go back to segregated societies. We don't want to go back to things that we have said are morally wrong. So you have to have judgment in order to have justice. The, qu- the, the problem is not justice, the question a uh, judgment. The question is who is good enough to judge? And on what basis? And so now we get to the second observation and that is in the scriptures you, you start to understand that for God, for Yahweh, love, is at the heart of God's justice and judgment. Love is the motivating factor. All of God's acts of justice, all of God's acts of judgment even, come out of the heart of love. Now in Jonah 3 verse 9, the king of Nineveh doesn't know this. He's a pagan king. And so he says in verse 9, look, who knows, God may see our repentance and turn from his wrath so that we might not perish. Who knows? You kind of get the sense that he's used to God's being unpredictable. Used to God's just sort of being erratic and wrathful. He's like, I don't know. And so he says to his own people, who knows? But the reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh is Jonah knew. Jonah knew what God would do. In fact, he he says it in the very next chapter. I don't want to steal the thunder from next week's sermon. But Jonah says, I knew you would do this. (laughs) The king of Nineveh says, who knew? Who knows? Jonah's like, I knew. That's why I didn't want to come here. (laughs) Why did Jonah know that Yahweh loves and has love at the root of all of his acts of justice and judgment? All the way back in the book of Exodus when Moses says, I need to see the glory of God. I want to see the essence of who you really are. He has this revelation of God and, and the glory of the Lord passes before him and he hears the Lord's voice saying... The Lord, the Lord, abounding in compassion, full of steadfast love. And then it goes on to say, and he will not leave sins unpunished. Why? Because he is full of love. Because God is love, he looks at his world and sees anything that threatens to destroy it, even to destroy ourselves, and says, I am necessarily against that, because it is Will destroy you. If you've ever walked through the journey of cancer and had to go to treatment to attack the cancer in your body, you don't want a doctor who is loving toward cancer. You don't want a treatment plan that says, I don't know, I just feel bad, I just kind of want to be loving you. Do we have to be so judgy about the, these cancer cells? I mean, I know the pathology reports came up, but just, you know, let's Why, how do we know that this is really bad? If the doctor loves you, they will hate the cancer. You have to understand that God's judgment and justice in the world is because he loves his world, is because he doesn't want the infection of sin and the, the, the infection of evil to begin to destroy you or the world around it. He is against the violent oppression, exploitation of the Ninevites. The great preacher, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., said this about, in one of his sermons about a God of justice and a God of mercy. It's a long quote, but I want you to see it this morning, to read it. At times, we need to know that the Lord is a God of justice. When slumbering giants of injustice emerge in the earth, we need to know that there is a God of power who can cut them down like the grass and leave them withering like the green herb. When our most tireless efforts fail to stop the surging sweep of oppression, and he saw the surging sweep of oppression, we need to know that in this universe is a God whose matchless strength is a fit contrast to the sordid weakness of mankind. But there are also times when we need to know that God possesses love and mercy. When we are staggered by the chilly winds of adversity and battered by the raging storms of disappointment and when through our folly and sin we stray into some destructive far country. What a metaphor. And are frustrated because of a strange feeling of homesickness. What a picture he's painting. We need to know that there is someone who loves us, cares for us, understands us, and will give us another chance. When days grow dark and nights grow dreary, we can be thankful that our God combines in his nature a creative synthesis. What a phrase. A creative synthesis of love and justice, which will lead us through life's dark valleys and into sunlit pathways of hope and fulfillment. Let the people say amen. Amen we need this we want to see the same God out of his love comes his justice and judgment but the third thing we observe from this passage let's look at a few verses in Jonah 3 the first verse the Lord's Word came to Jonah a second time aren't you glad that the Lord calls to us a second time and a third time and a fourth time again And again, and again. And this time, verse 3, And Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's word. Verse 5, When the people of Nineveh hear the word of warning, The people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on mourning clothes. And from the greatest of them to the least significant... When the word of it reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, stripped himself of his robe, covered himself with mourning clothes. Sackcloth and ashes is what some translations say. And sat in ashes. And when he announced in Nineveh by decree, the king and his officials, neither human nor animal, cattle nor flock will taste anything, no grazing and no drinking water. Let humans and animals alike put on mourning clothes and let them call upon God forcefully. And let all persons stop their evil behavior and the violence that's under their control. It's amazing that the king of Nineveh knew exactly why they were under the judgment of God. These were a people, as Pastor Jason told us, this is the first civilization to develop a professional army, a standing army. And not just that, but a people who gloried in how torturous and brutal they could be. Israel had been victimized by them. And as soon as there's a word of warning, he already knows. We've got to stop the violence. Verse 10, and God saw what they were doing, that they had ceased their evil behavior. And so God stopped. That parallel is important. The king says stop. God himself stops planning to destroy them, and he didn't do it. The third thing we need to see from this text is that repentance is always possible. Repentance is always possible. Now, we may be a little skeptical of whether Jonah legitimately repented. I'm skeptical. I think Jason's more skeptical than I am. And we'll see in the very next chapter why we're skeptical. Did Jonah really repent or was he just like, fine, I can't get out of this, so I have to. Sure. The point is, the Lord called a second time and Jonah went he went. But the, the repentance that you see in the fullest sense in this chapter comes from the people of Nineveh, from the greatest to the least, all through their society. In fact, there's a threefold layer of movement here of their repentance. What's interesting is the Bible tells us that the city of Nineveh is a three-day walk from one side to the other side. And it says, and Jonah was one walked one day. <laughs> was this because he's slow? Like, is Jonah literally dragging his feet here and being like, okay. Like, are we meant to read Jonah's reluctance into this? Or are we meant to, with a little bit of comedy, meant to see Nineveh's repentance? It does, he doesn't even get all the way across. The king hasn't even heard it himself. But he hears about it. And he says, what? What? There's a prophet? Warning of judgment? We've got to repent. Jonah can't even get one third of the way through and they're already repenting. You're meant to sort of see this eagerness, this willingness to turn. And then the end of the chapter is that God himself, in a manner of speaking, quote-unquote, repented. I don't mean that he was doing something wrong. I mean that he turned direction. He changed course. I was going to do this. Now I'm going to do that. What we discover in this is that our repentance is always met by God's mercy. And we're tempted to sort of say, isn't that amazing? And stop right there. Our repentance is met by God's mercy. Hallelujah. Actually, the gospel is better than that. It's not our repentance that leads to God's mercy. It's God's mercy that leads us to repentance. It's God's mercy that's chasing us down. You see, sometimes you hear about this warning of judgment. You think, well, that sounds so mean. Have you ever thought about how loving a warning actually is? We, in a modern society, we lived in Oklahoma for four and a half years and they had tornadoes there. The, the most care, um, the expression of care shown by the government of Oklahoma was to have a tornado warning system implemented. And so when you hear the warnings, you know, take cover. Warnings are an expression of care and concern. Here, if we understand, we have people, many of you who serve in the Department of Defense and serve to protect and to keep us safe, you understand there are elevated threat warnings. Why do we have that? So that we can be kept safe. Warnings of impending doom are an expression of care. What if God sent Jonah to Nineveh not to be this crazy, capricious, sort of threatening God, but what if God sent Jonah to Nineveh to say, I care about you. You're going the wrong way. Turn it around. You're headed towards your own doom and destruction. Turn it around. You see, we imagine that God is sitting up there just waiting to send people to hell, even to sort of flunk you on a technicality and to say, uh uh uh, I don't think you got that line of the creed wrong. Hell for you, you know. What we understand in Jonah, friends, in the Old Testaments, What we find is a God who is so merciful... He goes to great lengths to send a stubborn and rebellious prophet who, even when he's trying to run from God, God says, I'm going to send a great fish, I'm going to make sure you complete this mission, why? You have to complete this mission, why? Because I want the most wicked civilization that you know of in your day, I want even them to be saved. God is not looking to damn people on a technicality, he's looking to deliver everyone by his mercy. This is the God that we see in the scriptures. He's not looking for excuses to send you to judgment. He's looking for excuses to save you. Amen. Looking for reasons to rescue you. We recognize through all of this that actually we need more than a do-over. We need more than a do-over. Jonah gets the second chance. And he still can't get his heart quite right the history books tell us that Assyria did not exactly become a Christian empire after all this. We need more than a do-over. We need a deliverer. We need a savior. We need someone who will rescue us. Romans 8 in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote it this way. So therefore there is no condemnation. No condemnation. To put it in other words, there is now no more sentence of judgment. You're like, oh, grace. Why? Why is there no more sentence of judgment? Is it because God has softened in his old age? Is it because Paul was saying, you know, God was kind of a tense, sort of uptight. He was super stressed out. Okay, the Old Testament, Israel, they were a mess. He just kind of stressed out. He's under a lot of pressure. Have you ever tried to save people from, you know, but hey, he, he settled down, he come down, God's super chill now, he's re- good news, relax, no more judgment, man, just peace. Was Paul a hippie? Was Paul sort of the forerunner of John Lennon's song, imagine there's no heaven, imagine there's no hell? As if the key to world peace was to eliminate a divine judge? Mm. A few years ago, there was a bus campaign in the UK that put the slogan on the sides of buses and it says, there's probably no God. First of all, I love that they said probably. Very British. Like, we're not very sure. So we're just going to just qualify this a little bit. There's probably no God, it said. And then it says, so go ahead and enjoy your life. Which assumes that if there is a God, he's out to destroy your life. And assumes that if you got rid of that God, you would be able to give yourself joy. What if the gospel is not that there is now no condemnation full stop. Because we don't need a God. We don't need an angry being. But actually, the only way for condemnation to be removed is to have a deliverer who does it for you. And so Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation, not because God changed his mind, not because there is no God, but because we are in the Messiah, Jesus. And why not? I love this translation. Because the law of the spirit of life in the Messiah, Jesus, released you from the law of sin and death. You didn't just get a do-over, you got freedom from the captivity, from the tyranny, from the oppression of sin and death. And then he goes on, for God has done what the law, being weak because of human flesh, was incapable of doing. God sends his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering. And right there, in the body of Christ Jesus, he judged sin. In the body of Christ Jesus, he dealt With evil, For this was in order that the right and proper verdict of the law could be fulfilled in us as we live, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We don't just get a do-over, we get deliverance, and we don't just get deliverance, we get the spirit of Jesus Christ in us himself. Why? Because Jesus took the judgment of God in and on himself, in his own body on the cross. You see, the cross is where justice and mercy meets. The cross... The cross is where justice and mercy meet. It's on the cross that Jesus, we understand on the cross, is how a merciful God executes justice by absorbing judgment so that he can show mercy to sinners and justify us. Only Jesus could do that. The merciful God executes justice by taking the judgment of sin on himself. So that mercy can flow to sinners and we can be justified. Friends, the king of Nineveh said, who knows? Maybe God will have mercy. All of us sit here this morning at 12.07 p.m. Palmer High School. And we don't have to wonder. We don't have to say, who knows? And shrug our shoulders Maybe you've grown up in an environment or what you heard about Christianity was that God was up there somewhere and he was unpredictable and maybe on a good day he would be okay with you and maybe on a bad day he was not okay with you. Friends, I have good news. If you are in Jesus Christ, you know what God thinks of you. You know what God says about you. You don't have to wonder who knows. The New Testament, the gospel reading this morning has Jesus saying that one greater than Jonah is here. One greater than Jonah. Jonah hears the word of God, runs the other way. Jesus is the word of God and sets his face like flint toward Jerusalem. Jonah involuntarily goes down, down, down into the belly of the fish. Jesus voluntarily lays down his life and goes down, down into the grave. Jonah came proclaiming judgment. Jesus came to carry our judgments. On himself. One greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is how mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus is how mercy triumphs over judgment. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, I, I, I don't know if I see myself as Nineveh. I mean, I, I, I you know, I just, I haven't been that bad Maybe for you, you see yourself as Jonah. And Jesus has come to deliver you too. Jesus has come to turn you around in your story. The king of Nineveh echoes words that are kind of like the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? He's in the pigsty and he's eating pig food. And he says, you know, I should go back to my father's house because who knows? (laughs) Maybe my father will have mercy on me. Jonah is like the older brother who says, I don't like that God has mercy on wicked people, not recognizing that he himself needs to be a recipient of the mercy of God. Wherever you are this morning, Nineveh or Jonah, we're all in need of the mercy of God. And the good news is we have it. We have it. One greater than Jonah is here. And as we come to the Lord's table, we're going to open uh, the opening words of this prayer The words that say, most merciful God. It's not a prayer that says, "Uh, God, I hope you'll soften up. It's a prayer that says, I already know who you are. I already know. You're the God of mercy. You're the God who calls to us again and again and again, warning us from judgment, warning us from destructive patterns, warning us from pathways and people who will lead us down the wrong places, calling us back to himself because you are the most merciful God. You should bow your heads this morning.